Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James. Welcome back to another episode of Psych Essentials. We're on the fourth of four in our series of The Art of Psychiatry. Right on. This time we're talking about anxiety. And to kick things off, I'd like to have us take a listen of a song by Green Day. Let's do it. Sometimes I give myself the creeps. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me It all keeps setting up I think I'm cracking up And am I just paranoid? Am I just stuck? I went to a shrink To analyze my dreams That was Basket Case. Lindsay, what year did that come out? That came out in 1994. It brings me back, I have to say. The good old days. Green Day is a classic. Definitely. And Billy Joe Armstrong wrote this song. And at the time, he was suffering from anxiety and panic attacks. And he he wrote at, at one point that the only way I knew how to deal with my anxiety was to write a song about it. And so that's kind of what this song is about, is about his struggle with anxiety. Huh. Are there lyrics in particular that kind of point to that? Yeah. He starts off the song kind of by suggesting that he's really overwhelmed. Like, do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? It's like he has all these worries, worries, worries that are piling up and he, he wants to try to get them out and to kind of share them with someone as opposed to just dealing with it by himself. The quality of the sound, in addition to the the lyrics themselves, has a kind of anxious feeling. It feels fast. The pace is mm-hmm. quick. The music moves through these progressions very f- quickly. Yeah, I think it does a good job of kind of mimicking perhaps the mind of someone who's really anxious. So today we're going to talk about anxiety Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about like what I, I suspect people are familiar with this feeling, but maybe you could you could tell us a little bit more about anxiety. Yeah. So in its most basic form, anxiety involves worry or fear. And a lot of times anxiety is a perfectly healthy and normal reactions to circumstances in a person's life. For example, you know, let's say you're crossing the road and you're about to get hit by a car. You might instinctively feel really afraid and then jump out of the way of the car. In that case, the anxiety is adaptive and helpful. I bet you'd feel anxious even before you're even consciously aware of that. It happens at a really fundamental level. Exactly. With like a less extreme example, you might also feel some anxiety while preparing for a test or performing in a music recital. And in that case, the anxiety can sometimes be really helpful for motivation, for focus. So having some anxiety is normal, can sometimes be helpful. It can even be an essential part of living a healthy life. I think that for all of us, having some amount of stress allows us to progress through and achieve some of the tougher challenges in our lives. And I say stress not in a with negative connotation. I think sometimes it gets loaded with, but in in a way that 
anxiety is 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 us is a preparatory behavior exactly it's it's really essential for survival kind of at its most fundamental level but having too much anxiety can get in the way of things and it can sometimes get so bad that it is essentially functionally impairing for a person meaning like it's hard to go to work or school or have relationships exactly and so anxiety can take a lot of different forms and we're going to discuss a lot of the different anxiety disorders today okay we heard a little bit earlier from Green Day, but what have other people said about having anxiety? Scott Stossel, who's one of the editors of The Atlantic, wrote an entire book about anxiety. And it's called My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search of Peace of Mind. It's really well written, and he starts the book off by describing his anxiety, and I think he does a nice job of it. His anxiety on his wedding day. Yes. Of all times. Exactly. So he says, My wedding was not the first time I'd broken down, nor was it the last. At the birth of our first child, the nurses had to briefly stop ministering to my wife, who was in the throes of labor, to attend to me as I turned pale and keeled over. I've frozen mortifyingly on stage at public lectures and presentations, and on several occasions I've been compelled to run off stage. I've abandoned dates, walked out of exams, and had breakdowns during job interviews, on plane flights, train trips, and car rides, and simply walking down the street. On ordinary days, doing ordinary things, reading a book, lying in bed, talking on the phone, sitting in a meeting, playing tennis, I have thousands of times been stricken by a pervasive existential dread and been beset by nausea, vertigo, shaking, and a panoply of other physical symptoms. In these instances, I have sometimes been convinced that death or somehow something worse was imminent. Even when not actively afflicted by such acute episodes, I am buffeted by worry about my health and my family members' health, about finances, about worry, about the rattle in my car and the dripping in my basement, about the encroachment of old age and the inevitability of death, about everything and nothing. Sometimes this worry gets transmuted into low-grade physical discomfort, stomach aches, headaches, dizziness, pains in my arms and legs, or a general malaise, as though I have mononucleosis or the flu. At various times, I have developed anxiety-induced difficulties breathing, swallowing, even walking. These difficulties then become obsessions, consuming all of my thinking. In short, I have, since the age of about two, been a twitchy bundle of phobias, fears, and neuroses. Wow. Yeah, it sounds, sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? It really sounds pretty impairing. Scott highlighted a few things in there that are really common for folks with anxiety. This manifestation of physical symptoms that really arise from his anxiety and anxiety can feel really physical he talks about feeling queasy and having the sense of vertigo and shaking and stomach aches headaches like that that all is that feels very consistent in my mind with anxiety absolutely he also talks about this sort of sense of like existential this kind of dread that there's something or somehow something that's worse right and i think that's a key part of anxiety is just this kind of overestimation of bad things that are going to happen like the likelihood of those things happening to folks with anxiety is really high they think these bad things will happen i'm wondering what you recommend as ways of interacting with somebody who is suffering from anxiety a lot of the tips that we've given throughout this Art of Psychiatry series do also apply with anxious patients. So to start, be kind, calm, and empathetic to patients with anxiety. 
But don't just be supportive. Also be aware that there are likely underlying cognitive distortions that are present and you don't need to necessarily agree with those or validate them. Like someone who's worried. If I go outside for a walk, I'm going to get hit by a car. Exactly. You don't need to be like, yeah, don't go outside. You might say even the idea of going for a walk is really scary for you. But at the same time, you've gone for lots of walks in the past and haven't gotten hit by cars. Absolutely. That kind of gets to another key point is that you can acknowledge the patient's underlying emotional suffering, but also let them know that there is hope that things will get better, that there is a treatment or treatments that will work for them. We've been talking about this idea of countertransference or the types of feelings that are engendered in you as the student or the doctor as you talk to folks with these disorders. And countertransference is that I often feel when I talk to people with anxiety come in a few different flavors. Oftentimes I empathize with people. There, I can imagine times that I have worried about things in my life and I can imagine how much it must mean them to worry about things in their lives. Sometimes I find that I'm trying to solve the problems. If they're having a problem in their life, I'm drawn to try and fix it because they're worrying about it and I want them to stop worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get drawn into that. And then sometimes when I feel like there is no solution or they're worrying about something that they don't need to worry about, I feel really frustrated. Like, why are you worrying about this? This isn't such a big problem. Like, just get over it. Right. And when those feelings come come up for you, James, what do you find is helpful to cope with them? In general, having taking a step back and having some awareness like, huh, I'm noticing that I'm getting pretty frustrated right now. And I wonder if it's something about the interaction of this person and me that's causing it or there's something in this dynamic that's that's promoting that and sometimes even just that awareness helps me regain my composure and and feel a little more like stable like have some perspective on the situation sometimes i think when those feelings of frustration come up as well it can also be you kind of cluing into what's going on emotionally for the patient they might also be really frustrated about their anxiety and that's like you kind of you're holding on to that for them that's a great point There's several types of anxiety disorders, and this is a whole chapter in the DSM. And I'm wondering if you can help us think about when you're thinking about anxiety, how do you kind of break this down? What questions do you ask? How do you consider these different diagnoses? To start, it's really helpful to get a sense of what is the worry or fear centered around? Is it generalized? In other words, they're worrying about everything? Or is it more situational? Like what would be examples of that? An example of situational anxiety would be I only become anxious whenever I have to give a speech in front of other people. Versus more generalized would be like... I'm worrying about the future. I'm worrying about my health. I'm worrying about my parents' health. I'm worrying, I'm worrying, I'm worrying about tomorrow. It's like I'm worrying constantly about every facet of my life. Okay. So in that case, you've asked somebody... What sorts of things do you worry about or what times, what sort of situations do you worry about? And they've given you some examples. Right, right. And so once you have a a good sense of what the fear centered around, if it's generalized or more situationally bound, then try to get a sense of how the anxiety manifests for the patient. Is it predominantly intense somatic symptoms or is it more kind of anxious ruminations, thinking about things over and over again? Because like you said, James, anxiety often has a pretty significant physical component that um, goes along with the anxious ruminations as well. 
And ruminations are these thoughts that people have, right? It's this idea, it's this pattern that I suspect a lot of people are familiar with. Like, I often think of like laying in bed at night and all of these thoughts come into your head and you're thinking about the day and exactly. you're thinking about... Like over you, and over and right, over. <laughs> what you said to that person and how could I have done that and what are other ways I could have done it. Yep, and, that's a perfect example of a rumination right there. So what does the anxiety look like for them? In other words, can, can they describe it in their own words? After that, you'd want to get a good sense of how long does the anxiety last? Does it last two minutes? Does it last all day? Somewhere in between? Because that can also help us with our differential. Because certain types of anxiety, like panic attacks, last you know only a few minutes. But then other types of anxiety, like generalized anxiety, last all day. Okay. Then it's helpful to get a sense of what makes the anxiety better and what makes it worse. And this question can be helpful to really get a sense of if the patient is engaging in any avoidance or escape behaviors that might need to be addressed in therapy. One example could be that for somebody talking to her mom makes her really anxious, especially when they talk on the phone. And so because of that, she's been avoiding her mom's phone calls and she's been letting them go to voicemail over and over. And now she has six voicemails and that's making her even more anxious because she knows it's going to have to happen in the future. Right. You can see how the avoidance perpetuates the anxiety. And I think the idea here is that in the short term, avoidance makes people feel better. That's why they do it. But in the long term, people don't learn that the things that they're avoiding, that it's that it's safe, that it's not as bad as they're thinking. They don't ever have that opportunity to kind of relearn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that will be a kind of a mainstay in, in how therapeutically you would talk about this in psychotherapy. Exactly. And so then finally, how does the anxiety impact someone's life? It's, you know, especially in kind of the key domains of work and relationships, school, whatever it may be. It's important to get a sense of if the anxiety is functionally impairing for the patient. That'll help you get a sense of is this the anxiety that we all live with as part of being human or is this something that could rise to the level of a disorder? Exactly. And then finally, it's always important to rule out any contribution from underlying medical disorders or substance use. Absolutely. Now, you've talked about some of these briefly, but I'm hoping we could mention a few more points about some of the major types of anxiety Yeah, so some of the things to consider in your differential when you're concerned about an anxiety disorder is generalized anxiety disorder. So this involves persistent worrying about a variety of things for most of the day. And it really gets in the way of a person leading the life that they want to lead. It's often associated with some somatic symptoms too, like people will complain like their muscles are tight or they kind of feel internally restless. Okay. But the worry kind of is all pervasive for them. Okay. Now, what about panic disorder or panic attacks? Right. So panic disorder consists of kind of these unexpected and recurrent panic attacks plus persistent worry about having panic attacks. So having panic attacks alone doesn't necessarily mean that you have panic disorder. It's kind of the fear of having a panic attack. Because you can see panic attacks in other situations. For example, someone with a fear of snakes might have a panic attack when they see a snake, but they're not always like worried about having panic attacks in the future. Okay. So let's back up. What is a panic attack? 
a panic attack is kind of a brief rush of fear, a very acute fear that lasts a few minutes typically. And it's kind of maximum intensity onset of symptoms. What are the symptoms? The symptoms are kind of this fear of death, fear of losing uh, one's mind, um, shortness of breath, palpitations, nausea, numbness, dizziness, shaking. So there's a lot of somatic symptoms associated with a panic, panic attack. And then just this intense fear, like the world is falling down on them, like losing my mind. I, I, I can't handle this. People often describe thinking that they are literally having a heart attack or they're literally going to die. Exactly. That's I mean, the a, sensation. a lot of people do go to the emergency department for evaluation the first time they have a panic attack because it does mimic the symptoms of bad things. But you're describing that this attack lasts from minutes, maybe up to like 30 minutes. Yeah. So it would be uncommon for somebody to have a panic attack lasting hours or days. It would be very uncommon. Yeah. Okay. So like you said, panic attacks can happen in, in a variety of different anxiety disorders, like a phobia if you saw a snake or something. But in the panic disorder, they happen in unexpected situations and you then worry like, oh my gosh, am I going to have this happen again out of nowhere? Exactly. It almost becomes this fear of fear. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So how would you ask somebody if they have panic disorder or panic attacks? Yeah. So you can get a sense of this by asking them, do you ever have episodes of really intense anxiety where maybe it's so overwhelming that you feel like you're dying or losing your mind? And then from there, you can kind of ask them to expand on that. Like, what, what does this look like for you? What, what, where do you experience this in your body? How long does this last? Because if someone's describing something that's lasting all day, probably not a panic attack. Okay. Now, what about people who worry about being around other people? Right. That kind of anxiety gets more at social anxiety or social anxiety disorder which is characterized by very significant fear in social situations. Okay, so agoraphobia is, is folks who often won't leave their house because they're worried about encountering anyone else and then having an embarrassing situation happen to them. Whereas social anxiety disorder comes more from the interplay of you and somebody else in a social situation. Yeah, exactly. So one question that sometimes we'll ask people is, do you have any concerns about going to a party and they'll say oh I don't want to go to the party mm -hmm. and then I'll say what if it was a party where you knew everyone and they were all your friends and they'll say oh that would be fine right that's a social anxiety disorder because you don't like talking to people you don't know as opposed to agoraphobia it would make no difference if you were around people you knew or people you don't know it's just being in other around other people because there's a possibility of something bad happening right that you might have a panic attack mm -hmm. yeah so that kind of leads to other specific phobias right there's a lot of there's a lot of those right like claustrophobia arachnophobia what other phobias if it exists there's of? probably a specific fear, like a of, fear it. of clowns i don't sure. know what kind of phobia that is yeah fear of small rooms <laughs> Not unlike the one we're in. So in that in that case, you would ask somebody, is there something specifically that causes a lot of fear or anxiety for you? Right. Now, there's some things that are not technically classified in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. There's 
quote-unquote Bible of psychiatry, but I kind of think of them as anxiety adjacent. Yeah. Like, so obsessive compulsive disorder would be one of them. What What's that? OCD is essentially a potential combination of obsessive thoughts and or compulsions. So examples of obsessions would be this kind of thought that you might hurt someone you love, even though you don't want to. A thought that you might leave the house unlocked and get robbed. A thought that you might get contaminated by germs or dirts. The thought that you might hit someone while you're driving. So these these are kind of thoughts that pop into your mind, even though you know that they don't make sense. And they're really distressing for the patient often, kind of having these recurrent bizarre thoughts. Just And it's obsessive. You can't stop thinking about it. Exactly. Now, what about the compulsive part? So the compulsions tend to be something that people do in order to make that anxiety that comes up around the obsessive thoughts go away. So the fear of contamination. These people wash their hands compulsively because that makes their anxiety around the obsession go down. The people who are worried about leaving a door unlocked and getting robbed, they'll repeatedly check that their door is locked. Certain people also have compulsions involving counting, like having to count things a certain number of times, having to do things a certain number of times in order for it to feel right. So I think there's a lot of lay use of the term OCD. People say, oh, I'm so OCD. And lots of people like things to be organized. They like things to be neat and tidy. And if you are that type of person, and perhaps you're a medical student, and that feels very good to you, perhaps that's a, a, a flavor of an obsessive compulsive personality, which is a separate entity. The difference between obsessive compulsive personality is that that feels good. You do this and you feel good about having just organized all of the pens in your pen case, as opposed to somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder. It feels bad. You do not like this. You recognize that this is taking time, but you have to do it. And usually it feels crippling. Right. And so like the fancy words to describe that would be for the OCPD people ordering their stuff, it's egosyntonic. Whereas perhaps for some for someone with OCD, because it's distressing, it's ego dystonic. Great point. So then post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is also, in my mind, related because there's a big kind of anxiety component of that. Mm-hmm. PTSD is is probably worthy of another discussion. But his hallmark is that there's an exposure to some type of trauma, which usually is a very intense, like you might have died, like a major injury, violence, witness to something. You got hit in a car crash. You got shot at in war. And then this leads to a combination of symptoms where you re-experience, you avoid, you are really kind of on edge all the time. You're hypervigilant. And then you have uh, sometimes like mood symptoms that go along with that because you're just worried. You overestimate the likelihood that this event could recur in your life. Exactly. So it does seem like there's a significant anxiety component kind of overlaying these symptoms. But for both OCD and PTSD, they are no longer classified as anxiety disorders at this time with the DSM-5. So the treatment of anxiety is what? 
Generally, the first line is a combination of antidepressant and therapy. So often we'll, you know, we'll choose an SSRI as a first line. And then in terms of therapy, CBT is often preferred to target the cognitive distortions that are very common in anxiety and those avoidance behaviors that we've been discussing a little bit. So that's cognitive behavioral therapy, and it'll be the subject of an upcoming episode. Now, lots of folks ends up on benzodiazepines for anxiety, but this is not a preferred agent. Why? Benzodiazepines are short-acting medications. They work quickly. They often work really well for patients. But unfortunately, because they work so quickly, they can become habit-forming. And this can ultimately lead to both emotional and physiologic dependence. While they tend to make anxiety better in the short term, they tend to make it worse in the long run. So really, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that the long-term use of benzodiazepines for anxiety is something we should be doing for our patients. This goes back to what you were saying earlier, where you're solving an immediate problem, but then you get in this habit of feeling like, I need this medicine to solve this problem, as opposed to actually addressing the underlying issue. And and then people don't feel better. There's also a lot of long-term evidence that benzodiazepines can be harmful and can lead to all sorts of adverse outcomes. If you're thinking that it could be indicated, I suggest talking with your team and talking with psychiatrists to see if there are other options that may be available for patients. Absolutely. So what are some of the key points from our anxiety episode, James? Anxiety itself is not bad. Anxiety is normative. It is a part of the normal human existence. And in many ways, it can be helpful and good because it promotes awareness and attentiveness. It becomes a problem when it impairs your ability to work or have fun or engage in relationships. Anxiety takes a lot of different forms. It can be really specific. It can be really broad. It can happen intermittently. It can happen all the time. But often there's some commonalities, and often it feels very physical or somatic is the word we'd use to have anxiety. So when you're thinking about it, it's worth asking a lot of the questions that we were asking earlier to help differentiate. Nonetheless, anxiety disorders are very treatable and often respond best to therapy, specific types of therapy have a lot of evidence behind them and medication. Right on. And so this is the end of our art of psychiatry slash psychopathology series, isn't it? Awesome. Well, I hope you've enjoyed it. We really enjoyed delving into a little bit of this other side here. I think there can be this tendency to romanticize the tortured artist who struggles with depression or Picasso who's cut off his ear or or people who I believe live, that was Van Gogh. Or Van Gogh who's cut off his ear. This this idea that there's something powerful about mental illness. And that can be the case, but I think that it, it can also lead to some resistance in seeking treatment because it can feel like this is part of me and I don't want to eliminate this. So maybe we can end this series with a quote by John Green, who's an author. He's also a vlogger on YouTube. He wrote The Fall in Our Stars, and he has a new book that's called Turtles All the Way Down, which is specifically about anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. And John writes about this theme. He says, Mental illness is stigmatized, but it's also romanticized. If you Google the phrase, 
quote, all artists are, quote, the first suggestion is mad. We hear that genius is next to insanity. We see Carrie Matheson on Homeland going off her meds so that she can discover the identity of terrorists and save America. Of course, there are kernels of truth here. Many artists and storytellers do live with mental illness, but many don't. And what I want to say is, I guess, is that you can be sane and can be an artist. And also, if that you are sick, getting help, although it's hard and exhausting and inexcusably difficult to access, will not make you less of an artist. This is a piece from John that he wrote for Medium, and, and we'll link to the full piece because he then goes on to talk about what his experience has been like writing in the face of anxiety. So hopefully you've enjoyed this exploration of of what it's like to have some of these disorders and can better empathize with your patients suffering from these disorders. If you find other people who have spoken about mental illness and art and how it impacts their life, I hope you'll send us a link as we'd love to hear more about it. And as a side note, there are tons of other great songs and movies and books that really dig deep into what it's like to experience mental illness. So check out our website and let us know what you found and what some of your favorites are and we'll publish them as well. You can also leave a comment on this post. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Psych Essentials. You can check us out on iTunes where you can rate, comment, and share Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's a link on our website. As usual, people, places, and details have been changed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye.